everybody. Friday is here. It is Friday, August 25th. Congratulations. I hope you're ready for the weekend. It's the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. Another week. I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And reread all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. So I was Googling here August 25th holidays, Jill, and on nationaltoday.com, they list all of them, days you've never heard of before. I would like to uh, make sure everyone knows that today is National Mm. Banana Split Day, one of my favorite foods, so that's important. Uh, National Kiss and Makeup Day, uh, if you, uh, you know, are having a fight, today is Kiss and Makeup Day, so make sure you honor that. Uh, And Jill, our favorite holiday here on the Mo News Podcast, National Secondhand Wardrobe Day, and I say that uh, with total gratitude to Jill and her husband, frankly, her, <laughs> yeah. the whole clan, the whole family, as they've been donating things to us in anticipation of our baby. Basically, every time we are done with a piece of clothing or a gadget or something to hold the baby or entertain our, our baby, we're like, okay, Mosh, Alex, when are you come picking it up? <laughs> we've got a swing. We've got a baby Bjorn. We've got all sorts of good stuff. <laughs> Jill's kids are almost five and one, and so you know, batter up. We're next up in the lineup here in Brooklyn for uh, for all the hand-me-downs. And my son was a very, very happy accident, as they say. Uh, so we had gotten rid of most of our kids' stuff, thinking that we were probably mm. just going to be one and done. And so you're getting some relatively new gear. With my daughter, it was like stuff that had been handed down from nieces and, and et cetera. So for you, this is almost new stuff. Well, I, we're very <laughs> grateful for it, Jill. Uh, just as we hit record on the podcast, she was telling me, she's like, Mosh, I have more stuff for you. It's going to happen really quickly. I'm like, the baby's not here yet. She's like, it's going to happen quick. You're going to need it. <laughs> Before you know it, she's going to be mobile. And that's when you need the gadgets that keep her kind mm. of in one place so you can do stuff, anything really. Shower, use the bathroom, do some work, cook. Yeah, I've been told to appreciate the early stages when, you know, they're not going to run away from you and jump off something. Uh, But then that happens pretty quickly, I'm told. I'm currently in the cannot keep your eyes off this child for one second stage (laughs) because my son is basically (laughs) crawling, almost walking, putting everything in his mouth. It makes those early days seem quite easy. But anyway, let's get to some news, shall we? All right, let's do it. Starting with politics, Donald Trump surrenders to authorities in Georgia on election interference charges. And yes, there is a mugshot. He does not look pleased, Jill. Plus, the first poll numbers are coming in since the GOP debate Wednesday night. Who got the biggest bump? Overseas, Japan starts releasing treated radioactive water from its shuttered nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean, and not everyone is happy about it. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin breaking his silence over the Wagner chief's reported death. A new world alliance and we're not invited. The BRICS group announces some new members, including Iran. Is screen time for young kids really as bad as we think? We're going to break down the results of a new study. And somehow it is pumpkin spice latte season already. And Starbucks is rolling out some new menu items this year. Plus, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. What we are watching, reading and eating. All right, starting with politics in Georgia, as former President Trump surrendered to authorities Thursday night over felony charges in connection with efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results, he was arrested, 
booked and released. His inmate number, P01135809. Unlike his other indictments, Trump did have a mugshot taken and Moshe is not a happy camper. There were questions about whether he would smirk or smile like some of his co-defendants, uh, but he looks quite angry. Yeah, I thought there was a chance actually that he would have smiled, uh, hoping to use this photo uh, for marketing purposes. I'm sure he'll use it either way, but uh, seems very displeased. I'm sure that a lot of discussions went into what his expression would be for this picture. He used a local bail bondsman to cover his $200,000 bond. Many of his 18 co-defendants, including Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows, have already surrendered in this election interference case. A federal judge yesterday denied requests by two defendants, Meadows and Jeffrey Clark, to delay their arrests. All defendants face a deadline of noon today to voluntarily surrender. And it comes as Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has proposed an astonishingly quick start to the trial for Trump and his 18 co-defendants. This is according to a new filing. It came after co-defendant Kenneth Chesbrough, one of the 18 that was indicted alongside Trump, demanded on Wednesday that he get a speedy trial. Well, Willis appears to have called his bluff, saying that she'd be more than happy to put all 19 defendants on trial starting October 23rd. 2023. That is just eight weeks away. And then a court has granted the motion. It is a big move from the March 2024 date that she initially proposed. And that March date itself was wildly optimistic, given the vast number of defendants involved. Trump yesterday was quick to voice his opposition to the proposal for an early trial, filing a motion to sever his case with chess bros and, quote, any other co-defendant who files such a demand. Trump's team is asking for a trial in the year 2026. They want more than two years to prepare. Pretty stunning, Jill, to get that mugshot. That's a decision New York made not to uh, do in that indictment. And of course, the two federal indictments, they chose not to take a mugshot of the president, former president either. Um, Georgia, not messing around here with the racketeering case the 19 co-defendants, uh, and what appears to be a very aggressive uh, schedule. And we're going to learn more in the coming days and weeks as to whether Trump is going to have to deal with the fact that Chessborough effectively tried to call Willis's bluff. He's like, I want a trial in October, thinking she wouldn't be ready. And she was like, cool, we can do October. Let's do everybody in eight weeks. I'm ready. So the question is, is whether he can take his case away from Chessborough. She's going to demand to try them all together. Keep in mind the strategy she uses against Chessborough, she's going to use against other defendants, and that's an argument she'll make to keep all of them together. So we're going to watch all of that and those proceedings. And, you know, as we've been telling you, you know, Trump faces four criminal trials in the next year, three civil trials, uh, 91 different criminal counts over those four indictments, the two federal, the New York, Stormy Daniels, um, and this case, the election interference case in Georgia, uh, collectively, uh, the prison term. For all 91 counts, if you added them up, which again won't happen, is 700 years in prison. So Trump will have to go four for four in those trials. Uh, and then, of course, he has the civil cases, which are more fines and things dealing with his business uh, and personal life. And so that'll be his challenge on the legal front. So far, politically, it has not impacted him negatively. In fact, on the Republican side, uh, when it comes to primary voters, they're coming to support him more. And what's notable is so much support that he decided, I don't even need to participate in the debates. And of course, we had the debate on Wednesday night. And Jill, we're getting our first sense now 
of how Republican primary voters felt about how those two hours sans Trump, the eight others, um, went. Washington Post, Ipsos, and 538 have a poll of potential Republican voters out who watched the debate, and they found that uh, among those watchers, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy came out on top. The poll showed that 29% of voters thought DeSantis performed best, 26% thought Ramaswamy performed best. In third place, Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, she lagged behind them. She was at 15%. uh, And then the rest of the field under 10%, uh, 7% thought Pence did best, 4% for Christie, 4% for Tim Scott, and then 2% for the others. Nikki Haley showed the most improvement when it came to the share of Republicans who say they would consider voting for her. Pre-debate, 29% of Republican primary voters who watched the debate said they were considering voting for her. After the debate, the number went from 29 to 46%. Moshe, I did a very unofficial poll on my Instagram feed just asking people what they thought of the debate, if they watched, um, and, and who they thought won or lost. And I would say to a person, almost everybody said that they thought Nikki Haley won. And what struck me is that the people who responded, um, who follow me on Instagram, are probably not your sample Republican primary voters. And what struck me is that when we have polled our audience, specifically on the Mo News community, many consider themselves to be moderate. So these are probably more moderate people politically, and they were really attracted to the message that Nikki Haley had uh, on Wednesday night. And because of the system that we have in this country and the way that the primary system is and who gets to vote in which primary, um, it tends to favor more extreme candidates on both sides. And in a lot of ways, those moderate candidates never make it to the final ticket. I know you get asked all the time about that. Like, why aren't there politicians that are more representative of the middle? And this is why. Well, what's interesting about Nikki Haley is her viewpoint is not that, you know, like she's a conservative, right? She's pro-life. She has uh, many traditional Republican viewpoints. The party, though, has taken a swing uh, farther right um, in the Trump era. So when you look at Nikki Haley's uh, standing, she sounds like George W. Bush. She sounds like Mitt Romney. She sounds like John McCain. You know, traditional conservative viewpoints, right? Um, Leaning viewpoints. But of course, with the kind of populist push of recent years around Trump, and you hear it from DeSantis, and you hear it from Ramaswamy, that's where the party faithful are. That's where the party base is. And those are the people who tend to turn out in the primaries, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in South Carolina. So it remains to be seen um, how that works out. Keep in mind, on the other end of the spectrum, in 2020, you know, Bernie Sanders was the big liberal um, on the Democratic side. And the moderates all gathered around to come around for Joe Biden because they were fearful that Bernie would be seen as too extreme by a general election audience. The question is, would that happen on the Republican side? Well, it doesn't appear so, but it was interesting to see the momentum she gained and how much she gains out of this debate. Still, at the same time, while we talk about 46% of Republicans now considering voting for her, the number when it comes to DeSantis is 67%. Uh, which was up from 62% pre-debate, and Ramaswamy is now up to 46%. So he's tied with Nikki Haley. So as far as the Trump alternatives there, uh, DeSantis appears to be the most popular, and then you have Nikki tied with Ramaswamy there. Interestingly, and again, it's very early on here, this is a poll done in the first 24 hours, uh, debate watchers are slightly now less likely to say they will consider supporting Trump after the debate. Now, before the debate, 66%, two-thirds of Republican primary voters, said they would consider supporting Trump. After the debate, it's now down to 61%. So at least by five points, it's gone down slightly, meaning there is a group of people 
who watched the debate on Wednesday night, who previously said, yeah, I think I'll vote for Trump. And after watching the debate said, you know, I'm actually happy with the alternatives. I'm no longer considering Trump. Uh, and so the question is, as we continue to see people paying more attention, the second debate is the end of September at the Reagan Foundation out in Simi Valley, California, whether that continues to move. Uh, one other uh, number we were looking at, favorables, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, um, all extremely favorable out of the debate. Haley, again, saw uh, the biggest move, positive. Uh, there was also a move for Vivek Ramaswamy on the positive end and on the negative side, though still 60 to 32, more favorable than unfavorable. Uh, two candidates seen as unfavorable, more unfavorable than favorable to Republican primary voters, Mike Pence, Chris Christie. The majority of people who say they'll vote in a Republican primary find both of them more unfavorable than favorable. It's so fascinating because I was sampling different media on Thursday morning trying to gauge reaction. And some of the more left-leaning networks, even Morning Joe, um, seem to think Mike Pence kind of hit it out of the park. Well, they're just comparing Mike Pence against Mike Pence by Mike <laughs> Pence standards. By Mike, no, like, I mean, let's be no, realistic. Right, you're right. By Mike Pence standards, that was probably the biggest performance of his life. Like that was Mike Pence pure energy. Like if you, you've never seen Mike Pence like that ever before, like he took a Red Bull or whatever the equivalent, he'd be like shotgunned a couple of those. Like by Mike Pence standards, you're like, whoa, where's this guy been? But still compared to the rest of the candidates, you know, it's, it's challenging, but just, I, I, I think especially like a show like Morning Joe, where they've been watching the guy for 15, 20 years, uh, they were like, well, but, but, you know, they're comparing him to himself. <laughs> Switching gears and heading overseas, Japan has started to release treated radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. It is a controversial move. It's been met with fierce objections from many consumers and from some countries like China, which are taking some big steps, going as far as banning seafood from Japan. All right, so what is this all about? If you remember back in 2011, an earthquake and a massive tsunami destroyed that nuclear power plant. Several reactors melted down in order to prevent total disaster. Workers flooded the reactors with water. That water became highly contaminated, and it's pretty much just been sitting there ever since. Some rainwater has filtered in. That's also become contaminated. So you've just got these massive tanks that are now near capacity and cannot hold any more water. So Japan had to figure out what to do with it. The director of nuclear power safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists in Washington telling NPR, there really were no good options here. But in his view, Japan's current plan is, quote, probably the least bad of a bunch of bad options. Yeah, that's one of the challenges when it comes to these things is like, you know, you have to continue to run water through them, then you got to find a place to store all of that. So uh, over the past few years, Japan has created a system to filter out as much radioactive contamination as possible. They've been able to filter out some of the really bad radioactive isotopes. The one isotope they can filter out is something called tritium. Tritium is an isotope of hydrogen. Hydrogen, of course, is a trait of. I feel like there's been a lot of chemistry on the pod this week. Jill. Uh, hydrogen <laughs> I is part of water. You to read HDL. this, actually. <laughs> I felt like you were well we, <laughs> We've been talking about hydrogen on the moon. Now we're talking about hydrogen as part of tritium. So anyway, they can't take they can't take the tritium out because it's part of hydrogen. So they're going to dilute it with seawater and then release it into the Pacific Ocean, which they've started to do slowly 
over the course of decades. So to start, they have released about three Olympic swimming pools worth of water. Japan says the tritium levels are well below all safety limits. Keep in mind, if you have a nuclear power plant near you, they also release tritium. Um, into water. So this is not something atypical here. The UN's nuclear watchdog says the discharge will have a negligible radiological impact to the people and the environment. The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, believes the plan is consistent with international safety standards. The group plans to continue monitoring. Still, experts are split on the safety here. On one hand, there's a professor who studies nuclear accidents, including Chernobyl, who told NPR, quote, the risk is really, really, really low. That's three reallys there. And I would call it not a risk at all. If it's done properly, then the doses that people get and the doses that the ecosystem get just will not be significant. And yet not everyone is convinced, Jill, despite those three reallys. Really, really, really. Yeah, we're talking mostly about countries that are much closer to Japan than we are here in the United States. So there have been public protests in South Korea. China has gone as far as to ban all seafood and aquatic products from Japan. And that is escalating a relationship that's already pretty tense. China is describing this operation as, quote, selfish and irresponsible. They say they are banning the food as a way to protect the health of Chinese consumers and prevent the risk of radioactive contamination of food. Um, some Pacific islands like the Marshall Islands and Tahiti also concerned about this decision. Many of these countries have already dealt with high levels of radioactive fallout from nuclear tests during the Cold War. Um, and there are some islands in that area that are actually still uninhabitable. So they are particularly sensitive to this. Yeah, the history and the context is important here. Uh, keep in mind, it wasn't so long ago that Japan invaded the Koreas, occupied them, invaded China. This was World War II. So the relationship has been tense for decades, uh, for a very long time. So this just sort of adds to it. So at a time where you never really had a great relationship and they're doing this, and of course, you know, the Fukushima nuclear accident has sort of taken on a reputation of its own, sort of like Chernobyl, not Chernobyl, but nonetheless, so it feels like if even though other nuclear power plants do this on the reg, that this coming from Fukushima feels a little icky. And so um, that's where we're at. We obviously don't have long-term data on this. This is going off into the Pacific Ocean. There's a lot of fishing out there, et cetera. The experts, as much as you can believe them, IAEA, um, all those agencies say, we think this is okay. Uh, and yet the neighborhood still a little concerned. And this is something certainly uh, they'll be testing and monitoring and something we'll keep uh, keep checking in on. Mosh, we've got a lot to get to in this podcast, but we want to talk about a new partner that we have that is amazing for everyone with a small business out there or those who are ready to launch their own startup. How does this sound make you feel? Like I'm rich, Jill. <laughs> well, that is the sound <laughs> of a sale using Shopify. If you're a business owner, you're always looking for a solution to get your product to as many people as possible. Well, Shopify is the commerce platform that is revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're an entrepreneur making your way on Facebook Marketplace or even IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you really need to start, run, and grow your business without a struggle. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify is the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. 
We hope to have some Mo News merch pretty soon, and we'll be looking to launch it on Shopify, cool mugs, shirts, etc. Well, right now, there is a special deal for the Mo News community. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Mo News. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Mo News to take your business to the next level today. All right, now for one of our longtime partners here at Mo News, AG1, Athletic Greens uh, daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports full body health. I started drinking it last year. I've talked to friends about AG1. Uh, One described it as nutritional insurance, meaning if you have AG1 in the morning, you know you're covered for the day in terms of all your nutrients that your body needs. It's just one scoop of the AG1 powder with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy, it's quick, and it ensures you get over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals, pre and probiotics for your gut health. Some in the Monus community have told us it's helped them with mood support, boosted their energy. Uh, They've actually seen their skin and hair look healthier. So right now with your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of the AG1 powder. You can visit right now, drinkag1.com slash Mo News. That is drinkag with the number one.com slash Mo News to take advantage of the offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription. You can try it just one time for one month. Again, drinkag1, the number one.com slash Mo News for this special deal. Time now for the speed read from the independent newspaper. Vladimir Putin is speaking out for the first time, praising Wagner Group chief Yevgeny Prigozhin as a, quote, talented businessman, as he sent condolences to the families of those who died in a plane crash near Moscow on Wednesday. He broke his silence about 24 hours after Prigozhin was presumed dead in that crash. Um, Again, it is his former ally, the Russian president, saying it's necessary, though, to await the outcome of his own official investigation to figure out what happened. At the same time, that crash, which killed all 10 people on board, is widely claimed to be an assassination to avenge Prigozhin's mutiny in June that challenged Putin. Intelligence chiefs said that they suspected an explosion caused the crash. A U.S. Pentagon spokesperson saying that reports that a surface-to-air missile took down the plane were inaccurate, but he declined to say whether the U.S. suspects a bomb. So the Putin statement, Jill, was interesting because he was asked about it on camera. We posted a clip on Instagram Uh, And as he sort of praised him, he also said he was a man of complicated fate (laughs) and he made serious mistakes in his life. But he was also a talented man, a talented businessman. So, you know, typically when you're mourning your sort of friend who tried to do a mutiny against you, uh, (laughs) I guess that's how that goes. He was talented, but also made some serious mistakes in his life. Hint, hint. Uh, But we got to investigate it. And I'll let you know how that investigation goes. So the Pentagon's commenting. Everyone's trying to do analysis here, especially based on Putin's history of not being so kind to people who defied him. The Institute for the Study of War, that's a think tank research group that's been doing some great work on the on uh, the situation in Ukraine, uh, says that Prigozhin had many enemies within the Russian military among all the top Russian generals and Putin, and they pointed the finger there saying something's up. They wrote that the Ministry of Defense, the Kremlin, have been destroying the Wagner private military company, weakening Prigozhin's authority since that rebellion two months ago. And the assassination was likely the final step to eliminate Wagner as an independent organization. Remember back in June, you know, Prigozhin had it with the Russian military, decided to 
effectively run his tanks to Moscow or try to, took over two Russian cities, uh, killed more than a dozen Russian military members, took over their southern command, their war command, and then there was a deal struck with Putin. But we all knew this deal wasn't going to last very long uh, that allowed Prigozhin to temporarily live in Belarus. But then Prigozhin comes back to Russia and then suddenly his plane crashes outside of Moscow. And so we don't find that that surprising because Putin did say back in June that what Prigozhin did, what the Wagner group did, could have tipped Russia into a civil war. And that's not something that Putin was so happy about. From the New York Times, the five-nation BRICS club of emerging economies that came together to tilt the international order away from the West announced plans on Thursday to expand its membership, feeding concerns about a growing global divide. The BRICS group, which includes members Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, hence the acronym BRICS, represents a quarter of the world's economy and has increasingly sought to act as a counterweight to the dominance of Western-led forums like the Group of Seven and the World Bank. At its summit in Johannesburg, the group announced that Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia had all been invited to join and that their memberships would begin in January. Chinese President Xi Jinping, who had pushed for a rapid expansion of the group, said this move to bring in new members was historic. He wrote, international rules must be written and upheld jointly by all other countries rather than dictated by those with the strongest muscles. Wonder who he is uh, referring to there. The BRICS group has said that it wants to bring diversity to the world's power structure amid increasing polarization. This is sort of like watching the um, conferences right now, the college football conferences in the U.S. like expand. BRICS is going from (laughs) 5 to 11. Uh, I don't know what that'll mean for their acronym, though. I was trying to think, like, what do you do with Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran? You have a lot of vowels coming in. For like, it's going to be a tough pronouncer. A lot of people, though, taking notice, Jill, the inclusion of Iran as part of the group, which obviously has an antagonistic relationship with the U.S. Uh, and so it clearly there, China and Russia bring them in. They have a huge natural gas supply uh, and they're you know clearly seeing an opportunity to bring that in. But it does say something about the relationship they want to have with the West. And yet at the same time in that group, the B, the I, and the S of BRICS, Brazil, India, and South Africa, all have very friendly ties with the West. So we've talked about this this week on, on the Instagram account and here on the podcast. What is BRICS going to be and how will it get defined will be very interesting, especially with this new group in, because you have the Argentinas of the world, again, close to the West, but then you have Iran. So this expansion more broadly does give the group more financial heft. It bolsters the bid by China's leader, Xi Jinping, to show that Beijing has growing diplomatic support for its agenda, despite the fact that they've been kind of playing footsie with Putin and still backing him. And so as you look at this summit, there's a lot of interesting analysis going in here of what they would be able to accomplish during it. And it appears this expansion is going to be the big takeaway. Uh, You know, the other thing they were talking about that they weren't able to really deliver on is how do we create a BRICS currency as a rival to the U.S. dollar? And that's something that's immensely challenging. Now you're bringing in six more countries. So imagine trying to bring a currency to China and Iran and Argentina. By the way, the Argentine currency is a debacle right now. Bring all these economies together under one currency. Very challenging. It appears in the meantime, though, that they're just trying to get, you know, a whole group of kind of that next tier developing economies together. And it's a place where China can really be the top dog. 
from the AP, Maui County sued Hawaiian Electric Company on Thursday over those fires that devastated Lahaina, saying that the utility negligently failed to shut off power despite exceptionally high winds and dry conditions. Witness accounts and video indicated that sparks from power lines ignited fires as utility poles snapped in the winds which were driven by a passing hurricane. The August 8th fire killed at least 115 people. Hundreds are still unaccounted for. The lawsuit says that had Hawaiian Electric heated weather service warnings and de-energized their power lines during the predicted high wind gusts, that the destruction could have been avoided. The lawsuit said the utility had a duty to, quote, properly maintain and repair the electric transmission lines, and to keep vegetation properly trimmed and maintained so as to prevent contact with overhead power lines and other electric equipment. So we've talked about a couple lawsuits from a couple homeowners. This is the county of Maui. So this is, you know, government officials now suing the electric company. They say the utility knew the high winds would topple power poles, knock down power lines, and ignite vegetation. The lawsuit notes that other utilities across the U.S., whether that's Southern California, Edison Company, PG&E, San Diego uh, Gas and Electric have all implemented these shutoffs during high wind events, and Hawaii should have known to do that as well. So the county is seeking compensation for damage. Other utilities have been found liable in devastating fires recently. There was one in Oregon uh, recently where they found Pacific Corp responsible for devastating 2020 fires, ordered the company to pay tens of millions of dollars to people who had their homes and properties destroyed. That fine could actually go into the billions. And then, of course, in California, PG&E declared bankruptcy and pleaded guilty to 84 counts of manslaughter after its neglected equipment caused the fire back in 2018 that destroyed nearly 19,000 homes and businesses and burned down the town of Paradise, California. Jill, while we're on Hawaii, I just want to mention there's this controversy uh, you might have seen uh, in some headlines related to FEMA staying in luxury hotels in Maui. There's luxury hotels that typically would charge 1000 a night. Uh, and uh, there's photos of FEMA folks staying in those hotels. Uh, FEMA has put out a statement saying, we're getting a government rate of $300. There's a lack of housing across the island right now for survivors with thousands of them in hotels, temporary housing. And so that's why they've put some of the FEMA officials in one of those hotels where, by the way, there's also survivors and they want to reinforce the rate they're paying is, is much lower. So just if you see that headline, a little context there for you. From the tech website Gizmodo, when babies and toddlers have access to more screen time, it could lead to developmental risks. This is according to a new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association of Pediatrics, commonly known as JAMA. The study was conducted by researchers in Japan. It looked at the amount of time that about 7,000 kids spent on tablets, phones, watching TV, or using other technology. And it found that by two years old, babies who spent up to four hours per day in front of a screen were three times more likely to experience communication and problem-solving delays, while those who spent four or more hours on their devices were almost six times more likely to experience the same delays. They were also almost two times more likely to have underdeveloped fine motor skills and two times more likely to not have properly developed their personal and social skills. They also had delays in communication, gross motor and fine motor skills, problem-solving skills, and personal and social skills. That was the four-year-olds. One person looking at the data saying that kids learn how to talk if they're encouraged to talk. And very often, if they're just watching a screen, they're not having an opportunity to practice talking. They may hear a lot of words, but they're not practicing saying a lot of words or having a lot of that back-and-forth interaction. 
The World Health Organization advises against giving infants defined as less than one year old any screen time whatsoever and says two-year-olds should not be allowed more than an hour of screen time. So experts say that while screen time means your kids won't be bored, being bored is actually considered a good thing. Longer term, one of the real goals is for kids just to be able to sit quietly in their own thoughts. When they're allowed to be a little bit bored for a second, that's how creativity happens. A report from UNICEF, the UN Children Fund, said that more screen time can also reduce a child's ability to build empathy, saying, for a brain to develop and grow, it needs essential stimuli from the outside world. More importantly, they need time to process those stimuli. Uh, Jill, I know there's varying opinions about screen time, how to use screens. Uh, I've certainly um, heard those debates among parents, but it is interesting because we're now living in the era of the iPad, which came out about 12 or 13 years ago. So we are starting to get some real data finally. Uh, and I imagine this is uh, just one of many studies we'll be seeing about the impact of screens. Uh, and I, I imagine it's not just screen time. It's what you're watching on the screen. It's what's happening around the screen. It's what the kid is eating. It's the larger environment. Uh, and so it's not all apples to apples, but still some interesting numbers from this study. I don't think that they took into account Miss Rachel. And all I'll say is, yeah. <laughs> if you know, you know, <laughs> she has actually helped my son speak and say a few words. Um, but besides for that, we do try to keep him away from screens. But when my daughter is in the room, she's usually watching TV during meals. Please don't judge anybody out there. <laughs> it, we work, we're busy. Anyway, you could see his head will like, it's like a, a moth to a flame. You know, if that TV yeah. is on, he is glued to it. Even if I'm sitting in front of him and trying to read and talk. Uh, so it is a struggle how we are all going to kind of try to develop and, and just like be normal with all of this technology in front of us. From Axios, even the extreme summer heat cannot slow pumpkin spice season. Starbucks is releasing its pumpkin spice latte and fall menu this week. Six days earlier than last year, the announcement kicks off the annual debate over whether it is too soon for fall flavors and if pumpkin fanfare has gone too far, it follows Pumpkin Spice's August 16th arrival at Dunkin' and an even earlier launch at Krispy Kreme 7-Eleven and Bath & Body Works. There are a couple of new items on the Starbucks menu this year. The Iced Pumpkin Cream Chai Tea Latte and the Iced Apple Crisp Oat Milk Shaken Espresso. And then there's two drinks that you might remember from last year. The Pumpkin Cream Cold Brew and the Apple Crisp Oat Milk Macchiato, they will be back again this year. So Jill, it also turns out that this year is the 20th birthday for the Pumpkin Spice Latte. We did a history over on the Mo News Instagram account. It started with a team at Starbucks headquarters in Seattle in 2003, uh, where they drank espresso and then ate pumpkin pie to see how the flavors work together. Uh, and so we take you through that history. It took off, it exploded. Uh, and now it's getting released earlier and earlier than ever. You know, some people noted their kids aren't even back in school in some places, and it's already pumpkin spice latte season. Uh, of course, uh, you know, some people say nostalgia is a key driver here behind the fall flavor early appearance. Uh, even if it's 90 or 100 degrees where you are, you know, you like the feeling of fall, and Starbucks is trying to bring you there as early as possible. Well, I thought that that was one of the interesting points that the Axios piece made that perhaps because of the extreme heat, that people are kind of craving cooler weather and pumpkin spice latte makes them think about fall. 
Sure. Smells do that, right? And tastes do that. They take you to places. And so Starbucks is trying to take you there. By the way, this segment was not sponsored by Starbucks, <laughs> but we know that many of you are drinkers. But we'll take some. If they want to send us some pumpkin spice lattes, we, we're, not a, oh, we're not against it. We're open. We're open to a sponsorship if you represent Starbucks. All right, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for what we are watching, reading, and eating. Mosh, kick it off. What are you watching? So I'm into this new HBO documentary about telemarketers called Telemarketers. It's an investigation. Uh, it goes back a few years. Uh, heard some good things. So I'll report back on the uh, Instagram feed how it went. Jill, what are you watching? Mosh, my husband and I have just started this four-part series on Netflix. It is called Untold Swamp Kings. It's about football coach Urban Meyer's um, high-profile tenure with the Florida Gators football program. They won two national championships. There was a Heisman Trophy winner. Um, Tim Tebow is from that era as well. Um, My husband, of course, went to Ohio State where Urban Meyer went after that. So it's been fun to it's been fun to watch. All right, Jill, that's what you're watching. What are you reading this weekend? Okay, so I finished the five star weekend that I mentioned last Friday. I highly recommend, by the way, if anyone is just looking for a good beach read, it was awesome. And I was able to finish it pretty quickly. This week, I read a really fascinating article in Time. It's called Why the Nation's Largest School District is Making Virtual School a Permanent Option. And they're talking about a school in New York City where they decided um, that virtual school during the pandemic, while it was kind of a disaster for a lot of kids, for some, it was really helpful. And they had a lot more time to, to work on extracurricular things, and they didn't have as much time commuting, kind of like a lot of workers who were able to work from home and realized, hey, I don't need to necessarily be in the office. Uh, anyway, it's really a fascinating look at, at should school districts, especially with kids who are in these formidable ages, uh, should they be doing this type of thing as well? Jill, and of course, we were talking earlier this week about the fact that uh, school, you know, there's a lack of school bus drivers. Uh, and some kids are taking hours and hours to get back and forth to school. So certainly an option in certain districts. All right, Mosh, what are you reading? So starting a new book called Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons. It's a new book out by Charlotte Gray. It'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to be having her on the podcast. It's a story of Winston Churchill's mom and FDR's mom. Uh, a relationship you don't hear about them with their sons as these two leaders who would go on to save humanity from the Nazis, what they learned from their mothers. So I think it's a really cool glimpse at a history we know a lot about, but this angle we most of us know nothing about. It's so funny because when you first told me what book you were reading, I thought it was like a parenting book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Passionate mother, powerful sons. Yes. And I was like, why is he reading that? I like maybe passionate dads, powerful daughters. Um, right. But anyway, very cool. And definitely, I think more on brand. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's end this. What are you eating this weekend? Okay, so I am eating, um, it's called Take and Bake Sourdough Bread. It's from the Essential Baking Company. They basically send you this bread and you, it's baked already, but you put it into the oven for like 12 minutes on 350 degrees. And it comes out as if you hand baked fresh sourdough bread. It is awesome. Um, I get it from Thrive Market, which I I really like, actually recommended from your wife, Alex. And uh, it's just kind of like our go-to on the weekend. It's it's really good. What are you eating? All right, a couple things. Uh, Loving oatmeal right now. Alex just uh, cooked up 
uh, oatmeal. She likes this brand called One Degree Organic Foods. Uh, and then she'll caramelize some bananas and walnuts. It's delicious. She actually was trying to give me the whole recipe before the pod. And I was like, there's no way I'm remembering this whole thing. Caramelized <laughs> bananas, walnuts, <laughs> one degree. Hit her up on Instagram at A-L-S-A-L-L, uh, Alsol, if you want to get details on her oatmeal recipe. We're also checking out a restaurant that uh, we loved in Tel Aviv. Actually, has come to New York called Port Said. And we'll be headed there for you uh, tri-state folks. We'll be headed there tonight with a couple of friends. Nine months into pregnancy. I appreciate that Alex is still going out. She's a trooper, Jill. All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. Tell them about us. We would really appreciate it. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Thanks for joining us this week, everybody. It's been a busy one. And appreciate all of you who have joined Mo News Premium this week. Uh, you can check that out over at mo.news slash premium. I loved watching the debate with several hundred of my closest Mo News friends uh, and Jill uh, and all of you. So if you haven't joined us by now, give it a shot. We have a code, Mo News Trial, one word for free 30 days. I loved it. And I loved how you were like trying to get in some analysis, but you didn't want to speak over the candidates. It's not easy. It, I was no. very impressed at kind of how you were balancing it. Right. And then I was annoyed because I would miss something. But like <laughs> right. at the same time, like there's no value at it if we're going to just watch it together and then sit there silently. So we're going to figure this out. Debate number two is coming up September 27th. We'll have a more advanced setup next time around. <laughs> well, I thought it was great and I was really excited to be a part of it. Okay, everyone. Uh, have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.